Welcome to the Self-Helpful Podcast, where we break down the classic and cutting-edge wisdom of self-help to discern how to actually make positive change in our lives. I'm Kevin Miller, and in this episode, we're taking on mental health and specifically the unprecedented increase in mental illness diagnoses. Uh, Here's my take personally. I mean, we are theoretically all on the spectrum of everything. Uh, It's human nature, for instance, to feel sadness, uh, to have the feeling here and there of depression or anxiety. Brene Brown's best-selling book right now is Atlas of the Heart. She outlines 87 different emotions that are normal and healthy, But when do we go over the line from normal to abnormal, from feeling depressed to being clinically depressed, having depression or an anxiety disorder in essence? Do we need or want an official diagnosis so we can get the needed help or do we want to deny and boycott any such limiting label? Are we all accepting clinical diagnosis and causing us to limit ourselves? I mean, it's a big issue and a big question that's affecting all of us. So I've brought on an expert to discuss it. Sarah Fay is a writer and activist on this issue and has recently come out with her book, Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnosis. For those of you watching the video, there's the cover uh, of that. Sarah, from a young age, displayed some unhealthy behaviors that we'll talk about here in a second and was diagnosed labeled and treated and over the next 30 years went on to have clinical diagnoses and labels for anorexia major depressive disorder anxiety disorder attention deficit hyperactivity disorder obsessive compulsive disorder bipolar disorder and has also dealt with alcoholism and being a compulsive exerciser which i understand and many bouts of being suicidal as well you name the drug she's been prescribed it taken it and today she is very well, though still accepting, I think, of a couple diagnoses and medications, but has much to educate and warn us about regarding our current culture, which has nearly half of all Americans being given an official clinical diagnosis during their lifetime. So the book is a memoir-style writing of her personal experiences and her research into the medical system and how it handles and mishandles us and what the consequences are. And Sarah writes for many publications, including the New York Times, the Atlantic, uh, time, the Paris Review. She's an incredibly accomplished writer, teacher, and is currently on the faculty at Northwestern University. And she's the founder of Pathological, the movement. And you can find her at Sarah, S-A-R-A-H-F-A-Y, sarahfay.org. And hey, if you find value from the Self-Helpful Podcast, subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And please leave a rating and review to help others find the show and know what value they might receive. And you can connect with me at kevinmiller.co. Next up, Sarah Fay. Sarah, welcome. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, it's fun to do the intros there too, because you can also correct me and go, okay, you said that and that just wasn't quite right. Did I, was I, did I well, nail there it? There was one thing. What? Tell me, seriously, <laughs> tell me. I want to know. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting because in my book where I end up, um, and, and that's progressed, obviously, because it takes a year to put out a book. Yeah, and so yeah. the last time we had time, so things have changed, obviously, we grow and change. And there were things I didn't put in the book, um, but it, Ultimately, I, after receiving the six diagnoses that you mentioned, I ended up going to a new psychiatrist and I was suicidal at the time. I was in crisis and I went to his office. It was um, 
terribly cold out in Chicago. I just remember being, you know, cold even in his office. Um, but we did the 30 minute consultation. And at the end, I waited for him to either verify, yes, you have bipolar disorder, which is the, di- the diagnosis I was on at that point, or no, you have a new diagnosis. Cause I've got, I'd gotten six. So I was just sort of waiting for a seven. Right. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you have. And my whole world shifted and everything changed. And I thought I w- I went outside, I was walking down Chicago Avenue in Chicago and it was the whole street looked crisper, but also harsher and clearer. It was just like a different world. And I thought, no one knows what I have. No one knows. And that is when I started writing the book. And when I started doing research, I I said to myself, I'm going to find out everything about mental health diagnoses that I can. And once I started researching, I started writing the book and I said, I'm going to tell everyone I learned what I learned about mental health diagnoses. But since then, I still see that same psychiatrist and he had given me a diagnosis. He changed it twice since then, but I don't know what it is. And I've chosen not to. I've asked him not to tell me. And a lot of that, so I have a diagnosis. I still receive treatment. I always will. I will see him once a year, just like a GP. You know, it's my mental health. It's right to do for me. I was very sick for a long time. I'm not anymore. I feel I've fully recovered, even though we're told that that cannot happen. And that happened after the book. I'm actually writing the sequel to Pathological, which is about how I fully recovered. <laughs> so awesome. more on that later. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but um, yeah. So, so in other words, um, going back to your intro, I, I haven't come to terms with a diagnosis and where I stand right now is in those later years when I was writing the book, I, w- I did have a mental illness. I didn't say to myself, nothing's wrong. It was wrong from the beginning. Something was wrong. But what I learned is if we think of mental illness as an umbrella, underneath right. that umbrella are the diagnoses that we get to try to treat us, to try to get us treatment, to try to, so doctors can speak to each other about a patient. That's what those diagnoses are. So I was still under the umbrella of mental illness, but I was not labeling myself with a diagnosis and I was no longer seeing the world through a lens of diagnosis, which is what I've been doing for 30 years. Well, and you bring up the issue. So I was just, as I told you, sitting on the back deck here, having lunch with my, my buddy, Randy, who most of the listeners know, Dr. Randy James. And, uh, when we have, if I come in as a patient to, to a medical doctor, which he is now, he doesn't do primary care anymore, but he used to, um, I would come in and if I, he takes blood pressure and if I've got high blood pressure, we can measure that. I mean, it's, there it is. You have high blood pressure. There's no bones about it. You do. And if you don't want to keel over here, if it's bad enough, I remember a patient coming in. He said, dude, you need high blood. He's not the guy who's going to, you know, generally is prescribe stuff. He said, dude, you need it. Let's get you the, the meds and then get to work on what is causing it and get you off the meds. So that's, you know, from a functional medicine standpoint, but we can know that. And of course the question is, if I come in with anxiety, there's no measurement. We can't plug something on and go, it's son of a gun. Sure. Here's the spectrum and you're way past the midpoint. And as you say, he's just got to make a subjective call on, you know, Hey buddy, you just calm, calm down. Come on, calm down. Or going, no, you need, you need some help there. And there we are. And there's so, so much of the premise of your book that there is not a measurement. It's a call. And these days it feels like most 
And I'm going to try really hard not to be dissing docs. That's not the point. I have a lot of friends here that are docs and God bless them. We need them. But in this case, uh, how often do we come in? I share my symptoms and they go, okay, I hear you. And if that's the case, then here is something. Let's try this and help. And boom, you're saying, and once the med is prescribed, we have the propensity to say, I have X and there we go. Even when a medication isn't prescribed, when I received my first diagnosis, I was in eighth grade. I was just a kid and I received the diagnosis of anorexia. And I, at that time they weren't prescribing um, psychotropic drugs to anorexics. And I thought of myself as an anorexic. So I, I was already seeing, as I said, seeing life and seeing myself through that lens of diagnosis. And I wanted to speak to one point you raised that's so good, which is I'm the same. I I am pro-psychiatry. I love my psychiatrist. He's been so transparent with me about the flaws in mental health diagnoses and how, and, and to be honest, getting, you know, the book in my book, I don't ever fault psychiatry. You don't actually. Yeah. Yeah. My, my contention is with the diagnoses. It's really with the book that those diagnoses come from, which is the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders. If listeners, if your eyes just glaze it over, do not worry. (laughs) There's something about that word. I, I used to tune out too. I didn't know what it was until very late in my time in the mental health system. And so that is what I, I pick apart. So again, I don't pick apart mental illness. I don't accuse anybody, general practitioners or psychiatrists. It's the book. It's it's what's happened with this book that we've had since 1952. And the diagnoses have grown and grown and grown from 128 to 541 ways to get a diagnosis now. I mean, that's just absurd almost. And so I wanted to really look at why that's happening. And you point to it, which is that the DSM, the book, can't actually say the definition of a mental disorder is is essentially thoughts, feelings, and emotions that cause dysfunction in a person's life. But the word dysfunction, they can't define it. So what is dysfunction to you? What is dysfunction to me? Um, They have no measure. As you said, if I'm diabetic or I, you know, this is probably too much information, but if I'm, I'm faint from not eating and I urinate frequently, I go into a doctor's office and I say, I give him all my symptoms and there are more of them. And I say, I, you know, I think I have diabetes. Let's say I even kind of say that and push him toward it or her toward it or them toward it. And um, the doctor can say you have diabetes, but then we take a test and it'll show, I don't have diabetes. It's something else. And then we go look for something else. Mental health diagnoses aren't like that. He says, yes, you have anxiety disorder because I've told him I have insomnia. I worry all the time, this, this, this. But the problem is, what if I'm worrying all the time and I have insomnia because I'm going on a great podcast tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, well, well, you I s- mean, what is or whatever it is, you know, and or it's been going on for a long time and I'm, I'm under stress at work, you know, whatever it might be. The context, in my experience, was never even asked about. And that's once. that's what's so curious. Hey, but you talking about that, it is a your definition there of a mental illness, you know, disrupting life. I mean, it, it is fair, Sarah. I mean, who is who is out there who does not have some aspect of their mental reality that's not disrupting their life, whether it's gosh, I just worry a lot. I'm, you know, biting my fingernails or I can't sleep or I'm having a hard time concentrating or, I mean, I think there's very few, I, I, I'm, I have issues with all, you know, with, with so many of these of 
things that are disrupting my life. Now, to what level and to what manifestation and whatnot, and where do we get to the point of going, I need help, but then do I need medical help? Do I need a medicine? Do I need, need a diagnosis? Do I need to look at my lifestyle? And of course, we're going to talk about those things here. I do wanted to, I wanted to ask, I did want to go back where you started when you just mentioned it, that you got your first diagnosis at, did you say eight years old, nine? What were you? How, uh, eighth grade. Eighth grade. Okay. And um, you got that diagnosis because you were not eating. True. Yes. I mean, okay. You were not, when you look back now, what do you think talking about functional medicine, root issue type things, when you go back now, because your context at that point is, man, it, my stomach just hurts. It hurts and it's worse to eat. So I'm not going to eat. How do you look at that now? How do you look at yourself now? What do you wish had happened? Or what do you feel like the causation was even? Right. And, and what I write about in pathological is that my parents were divorcing yeah. and I was going to a new high school. I was terribly sad and I was terrified yeah. and that gave me a stomach ache. And I, it wasn't even just that I didn't want to eat. I couldn't eat. I felt sick every time I thought of eating. And so at that point I did not have the classic signs of anorexia. I was not weighing myself. I wasn't counting calories. Right. Um, I didn't think that I was fat. So those those are really the key components. And what happened was I was very, very ill. And it got to the point where one day I couldn't hold um, food down and I couldn't hold down water. And so my mother rightfully took me to our pediatrician and he weighed me and he said, anorexia. And from that moment, I then associated stomach ache, sadness, terror, emotions, thoughts, diagnosis. Like those were, that's the equation I made at that right. point. So, but what I see now is no one asked me about that and no one thought, well, maybe this is this. And, and it may have worked out in time. Instead, I learned more and more and more about anorexia and I became an anorexic. I started to count calories. I started to weigh myself. I started to believe I was fat. I did it all. And that that's the what I caution about in my book is that with each diagnosis, I became it. Yeah. And because it holds so much weight for us, we think a diagnosis is it's it's well intended. I mean, I we think the diagnosis is actually the path to healing. But what I've learned is it's not. Well, and you're, you know, pulling out. Now I, I have to be fair that I have come and I put it in the intro. I've uh, or I, I mentioned, it. I didn't say that I aligned with it, but I come from a history of boycotting. I don't want the diagnosis. I don't want my kids to have the diagnosis. I don't want them to embrace and limit themselves. So no, we're going to push that off. Now I have a son who had uh, epilepsy and literally has had some you know levels of brain uh, damage. And I don't think that that helped him. It was later in his life through my wife's advocacy that we did get him some diagnoses that did get him some help that I think would have helped him early on. Now, I'm not saying he's hugely damaged because of me and my perspective, but I'm holding both of those that I, I, <clears throat> I tend to come from that. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't want the, the diagnosis because as you talked about, or I should say my concern is that we have the tendency in our culture right now to embrace and, as you say, identify with that diagnosis. And I am concerned that there's even an aspect, especially amongst the younger kids, that it's almost kind of hip to have a therapist and a diagnosis. And it's kind of cool. Well, actually, that's not fair, too. Let's go to us. OK, you and me as peers at our age in the 
in this environment or industry of personal development and self-help. And I mean, your book is going to be, I, I, I've got a book that I'm working on right now and it's in the you know, New York times has it as the, what is it? Uh, how to advice and miscellaneous, I think is the category, you know, and then you go into your subcategories and in there, even having a diagnosis, you kind of go, okay. So I, I literally had a therapist question if I was on the autism scale and the first thing that happened, what did people do? Oh, Kevin, look at all these brilliant people who had autism, literally gave me the list. So now I can identify and go, see, there's, I'm brilliant because I have this. It's almost kind of cool. Bougie as my daughters would say. So <laughs> play with that somewhat. Cause I yeah. do have that concern of embracing it, identifying with it, and maybe even our cultural desire to want these diagnoses. And again, I know we're in murky water because there's people that, that this is needed for, and I don't want to be insensitive. Yeah. I mean, I think you bring up so many great points, but one thing that's so different about the autism diagnosis, for instance, that's a great example where the diagnosis is actually empowering that community. I mean, they rally around each other. They get services, they get funding. I mean, it really is, as you say, there are famous people who had it um, and didn't end their lives early or, you know, die as a result of alcoholism. You know, I mean, they had like good lives, you know, in, in the autism kind of diagnosis realm. But that isn't the case for other diagnoses. Right. So for the most of the others, you don't get a strain of genius. All you get is negative. All you get is dysfunction. And that's the real danger. I'm not encouraging anyone to identify or not with an autism diagnosis, but I think that's a good example. It's an exception to the rule. But for the most part, when you think about it, you get a personality test and you immediately, I'm INFT. I'm not INFT. I don't know what I am, but whatever it is. But the reason why it's so great to identify with those is that it shows you your strengths and your shadow side, right? You get the strengths and the weaknesses, whether or not they're real. Diagnoses have as little validity. I mean, as we said, they can't be proven. They don't objectively exist outside of my self-reported symptoms and a clinician's opinion. But all you get are the negative. That's it. And so there's, you know, you have to identify with only the most negative aspects of the human experience. And one thing also that you brought up um, is that all the symptoms of mental health diagnoses are normal, for the most part, psychosis is an exception, are normal human emotions and thoughts and behaviors. So all of that, I mean, when you think about that, we can all get any diagnosis at any point. And the DSM, you know, this isn't just sort of, we're not just talking in the air. The DSM, you know, the author is one of the architects who's Robert Spitzer. He has said, he said, he's since passed away, but he said the DSM is meant to cast a very wide net. So we're trying to diagnose as many people as possible. That's the goal. And again, it comes from a good place. We want to give everyone services who needs them. And when you have something like a pandemic and then you have children and teens in a mental health crisis, but we're giving them misinformation, which is that mental health diagnoses are chronic. They're not. That's never been proven, not even with schizophrenia. So we have to be careful, especially now, which is to say you have this diagnosis now. It's the way we're getting you treatment. And it may be the result 
of spending two years in your bedroom because that is, you know, anxiety and depression are a perfectly logical, normal reaction to what these kids have been through. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And, I, and I almost want to, I don't want to deviate here too far, but when you talk about DSM, so this is the codes uh, for mental health in the medical world, they have that. And to a degree, when you come in to see a doctor, let's say again, back to primary care, which you talk about so much in the book, you go to see primary care, an MD, like my buddy Randy is, and you say, Hey, i you come in. Okay. First time what's going on. And you describe that they have a book of codes, whether, I mean, they got a code for a broken arm. They have a code for a broken, you know, for anything for strep throat, there's a code. And that is a needed code in our current healthcare system. Without that code, your insurance will not cover it. So they have to find a code. And there's a, the dark side of that is I had a, a practitioner, another doc who was uh, uh, kind of uh, beaten against this. And he said, to some degree, they're motivated to milk us for codes. That's how they get paid. Now, I don't think the average doc is in there with a malicious intent. They're there to help. But the system is created just to treat a symptom, find a code, get you a medicine or a treatment, and ultimately to get them paid. So it's the same thing on the mental health side that we've got to figure out some kind of a container to put your pathology in so that you can get some level of help other than your one doc saying, I don't know. I don't know what you got. <laughs> well, insurance won't pay for that. Uh, the system. Well, you know what? He doesn't take insurance. Oh, there, well, <laughs> That's why he so neither does, that. neither does Randy, uh, which is why right. he gets paid a lot of money to get to the root cause issue. But and I was lucky that I got to see him and, and, you know, that's a real privilege to see, but most actually what's interesting is more than 50% of psychiatrists are now not taking insurance. Yeah. Um, many therapists don't take insurance. So that excuse kind of for why we need diagnoses to me, isn't as relevant as it's all we have right now. And it, you know, to me, there's what I've learned after 30 years in the mental health system and going through everything I went through to me, there's two steps to mental health and healing, which is the first step is get treatment, yeah. get treatment and commit to it. If that treatment is meditation, great. If it's getting a diagnosis and going on medication, great. Whatever that's going to look like for each individual. But step two, which we don't always teach, is that you've gotten, as I said, you've gotten a label to get treatment, that's all it is. It's just a label. It's just a marker. It's an approximation of what we think might be wrong. But unlike physical medicine, we're slapping a diagnostic code on it with no proof. Well, and what right? you just no, said, no marker. Yeah. And what you just said too, your prescription treatment could be meditation. You're not going to get that from a primary care provider. Uh, I mean, that's going to be yeah. a unicorn. <laughs> if you, if you do, you're going to get something on the medical side and not the things that you actually talk about in the very last chapter of your book and getting exercise and fresh air and healthy food and back and, you know, not doing any or backing off the caffeine and the alcohol and the, the lifestyle type issues. But let me, we'll, we'll, and I will talk more about that in a second, but let me ask you, you mentioned this, we have a current significant increase in people getting counseling and therapy with COVID. It kind of went along with that. And, uh, and, and I've done some advertising for some of the online counseling platforms. And in that, my first thought was great because there is a, an aspect of me, and I think you would agree, they say, God, we all need 
counseling. We all need that. Who on earth does not need counseling and therapy and help just with who we are and how we are and things? I think everybody would be great to do that. So to some degree, everybody's going to see counseling and, and or counselors and counselors and therapists are just full right now. I thought, initially I thought that's great. But now I'm curious. Yeah, I see your face. I, I'm curious. I think maybe that's not. And yeah, what is your take on that? Because we do have statistically more. I mean, counselors are full right now, more so than than ever. And that's why we see these new companies coming online. So everybody's, you know, everybody, a lot of people are going, they're getting help, probably getting diagnosed, probably getting a lot of medications. So yeah, what you, uh, that's, that's why I bring it up. Cause you know, you're giving me a little, I'm pondering my perspective. So yeah. What do you <laughs> well, think? Well, what's, you know, again, as you said, and I do believe everyone, you know, anyone who's ha who's suffering mentally, emotionally should go pursue treatment. Like there's just no question. That's sort of step one. What I want or what concerns me is that people don't know enough about the mental health diagnoses that they're getting right. and they will get one. The other thing that concerns me is that often, you know, GPs do much of the diagnosing at this point. So it's not psychiatrists anymore. It's therapists putting in their first counselors and therapists putting in their opinions or a GP straight out diagnosing. And then the therapist or counselor will then recommend a psychiatrist. And what's dangerous about that is those people as well-meaning, as savvy as they might be, aren't actually trained to use the DSM on the level that a psychiatrist does. So let's just say the DSM with all its flaws, the fact that no diagnosis inside of it with the exception of dementia and rare chromosomal disorders is scientifically valid, or the fact that most of them are unreliable, which means that if you see two different psychiatrists at the same time reporting the same symptoms, they won't necessarily come to the same conclusion using the symptoms and the diagnoses in the DSM. Even if we took all its flaws and said, you know what? Yeah, but doctor, you know, psychiatrists know what they're doing. Maybe they do, but psychiatrists aren't the only ones using it. Five of my six diagnoses came from GPs. So I came during my annual visit after 15 minutes and that was can, it. Can I explain that just so everybody yeah. knows? She's saying GP. So she's talking general practitioner. Oh, yeah, Family doctor, pediatrician, primary whichever care. one it was. Well, again, so I'm going to keep citing Randy, uh, Randy, Dr. Randy James, which again, no, most people have heard him on the shows here and they're going to be hearing a lot more of him. Um, that's where he started. So he was a general practitioner. So he did that. And I asked him about that. So he went to medical school. So you go to your four years of college and then you go to your, you know, however many years of medical school. And if you're going to pursue psychiatry, that's its own direction. So in medical school, he did some rounds of psychiatry to see if he wants to go that he did rounds in a lot of different things to see where he wanted to go. And he could have become, you know, of course, all the different specialties of doctor. He did choose general practitioner, family care. And you're right. So people come to him and he's kind of the front lines of going, yeah, I've got a problem. And he is off that, or he used to would say, well, gosh, okay, we can try this drug. And I ask him how often he takes somebody and says, you need to go see, you need to dig into this, go see a psychiatrist. And he, that's a different story. He admitted it's a struggle for him because he wants them to see like a functional medicine minded psychiatrist who's going to get to the root issue. There's not a lot of them, but he does do that quite frequently. He's very well aware that, man, that is not his specialty. He is not a mental health expert. Now he can help. And he can, you know, he knows enough to be dangerous, but yes, yeah, right. As you said, that is not his, and yet that's where most of us, and most of them are coming from not a doc like him, but one that's got 15 minutes to see you make a diagnosis and give you something. And you're saying, 
how on earth can that be the end of the story? That's something that we embrace and stay on a drug, stay on a treatment and embrace a diagnosis for the rest of our lives. So in essence, would it be fair to say, okay, look, if you're suffering, you're saying, yes, go get help. And if they prescribe something, it may be, but you got to take the reins in your own hand now and figure, yeah, I see you nodding. Okay. I, I wrote pathological because it's everything I wish I'd known. It's literally everything I wish I'd known about mental health diagnoses. And I wrote it to empower people so they don't have to go through what I went through, which was blindly accepting these diagnoses with no question. I mean, I received them from my primary care physician in a white coat with a stethoscope around his neck. Why would I ever question him? Why would I ever say, are you sure? Like this, this ADHD diagnosis, I'm not so sure. You know, that doesn't, that doesn't quite feel right. And yet I'm on Ritalin, you know, in like a second. And again, I'm not anti-medication. I'm still on medication. And, and there are many reasons for that. One is that if you take certain medications long enough, your body does become dependent on them. So I don't know if they're helping me anymore or if I'm simply dependent on them. I right. tried to go off them and I almost died and I'll never try again. And so that's that. But I, I do think that, you know, what you're talking about, too, is that GPs are in a very difficult situation, especially now. I right. heard from a pediatrician and he told me, he said he's just overwhelmed. Yeah. The number of parents coming to him asking for diagnoses for their children, he said, it's just, and he said, I just don't have the training. And, you know, so to give them kind of credit and some sympathy and, and you know, I can't imagine what it's like to be a, you know, primary care physician. You're expected to know everything. That's absurd. Yeah. And so, but I did read a University of Michigan study and they looked at, um, they did survey GPs, you know, um, PC, primary care physicians. And the problem I see is that the majority of them, when they were asked, are you comfortable giving psychiatric diagnoses? The majority of them said yes, hmm. despite the lack of training. And then when asked, do you consult with a psychiatrist? Only 35% said that they do. So that feels like a real lost opportunity. Again, I'm not a doctor and I know their days are packed. And, you know, this is coming from an outsider and a layman. Well, and, I, and I understand you that, said but. You said exactly what Randy did. He says, he said, man, I have compassion for his. Again, he's not doing that these, this, these days. He doesn't do general care and, and whatnot in primary care. But he said he has sympathy with him because, and he literally said what you talk about parents coming in so often, a parent coming in saying, dude, my kid is going nuts. I, I need something, something to help them stay in school, pass the grade while I'm at work and taking care of the rest of my life, just fix it. And it's a pandemic in that sense. And the doctors are highly pressured to just do something. And again, the system is only created. They've got a finite amount of time and expertise. That's what you got. That's what the insurance pays for. And if you say, well, gosh, I want a psychiatrist like what you have, Sarah, or Dr. Randy James, you want them? They don't even take insurance anymore. You're, you can't step in the door without thousands of dollars, which most people are saying, are you kidding me? I'm paying thousands of dollars for my health insurance. And now I got to pay beyond that. That's, we don't have a, there's not a solution for that. Um, other than, well, there is, it's just an ugly one. And it's what you say, you got to go learn about yourself and you're just going to cost you time and money. Otherwise, you got to accept what you said is just it's just what it is. It's the norm. I think, though, that what what gives me hope, what I get excited about and I've been in, you know, for a lot of my life, I didn't have insurance even. So it was just like, you know, I understand that perspective, too, where you don't even have the option of getting help. And that's perhaps, you know, even worse. That's but, tragic. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I guess one thing that, that gives me hope is what you're saying, we're all in this together. 
it's like a mess, you know? So there aren't bad guys anymore. You know, up until now, people demonize psychiatry and maybe, you know, a lot of people have been treated very badly in the psych, you know, in psychiatry and, and being treated, you know, um, for, you know, especially forced treatment. I understand that, but I just think we're all in this at this point, especially after the pandemic, and we can all work together to try to make sense of it and try to get people the help that they need. It, whereas before it was like pointing fingers and that's what I'd love to see end and really come together and try to make change. The place where the change can happen right away is with us, which is that if you know, okay, I'm getting this diagnosis. It's not hundred percent accurate. He's prescribing a medication. I'm looking at all the side effects, w w pros and cons, right? Then you've got a different, you're, you're making an educated decision. Whereas I was given a diagnosis it was gospel. It was true. It was scientific. It was medical. Given a prescription, I took them with drugs. You know, like it, that, that's that we can slow that process down. And again, I came to medication very, very late. So as I said, I didn't take my first psychotropic drug really until my 30s. And that's very late considering how long I was in the system. And do you in that, in your story, I did not see testimony to anyone. And again, the, the industry of healthcare doesn't make room for it generally. Somebody saying, can we dig in? What is the causation? So he, I, he, I hear what's going on, but what is the causation of this girl in eighth grade who is not eating? It lines up with anorexia. Let's do that. But what is the home look like? What is the lifestyle look like? You mentioned a minute ago, if you've spent the last two years in your bedroom, that's going to cause some issues. And of course, we have a lot of things right now that are talked about, you know, social media and screens and anxiety that people are having and, and whatnot. And, you know, I talked to Randy again about you prior to this, and he was talking about a patient that he has. She's a, a successful lawyer and came to him and she's just struggling to concentrate and she's got to con she's a lawyer she's got to concentrate on her work now she has a, uh, a husband who's incredibly busy she has a special needs kid she has a really fast growing uh, law firm she's not taking care of herself well because she doesn't see how to have the time to and she just wants help focusing. Now, I had just read your book and you talked about Ritalin and how it really helped you focus. And you were able to dig in and, you know, work on your book for three hours. And I'm thinking, <clears throat> I, I, I kind of like that. Um, you know, help me write my, who would, and I'm thinking, okay, so I come from a professional cycling. What's, what's the big drug there? It's PEDs performance enhancing drugs. So to some degree, I don't want to change my lifestyle right now. I really don't want to meditate. Now this is just me being candid. I don't want to, I need to, and I'm trying to, but I don't want to meditate. I really would rather not sleep at all. Uh, if I could, I'd rather just be doing stuff. So if you can give me a pill so I don't have to sleep, I'm there. If you can let me just have my busy life that I enjoy, but give me a drug to help me focus because now I can't that well, I'm there, man. It's a performance enhancing drug. How often are we desiring these in our culture? Because we just don't want to change our lifestyle. And again, I'm not dissing anyone because I'm, I'm the chiefest of sinners here as well. Well, it, it, I, the statistic is that 70% of college students are taking, uh, uh, ADHD drugs. Wow. 70%, whether they have a, wow. a, a diagnosis or not. 
And okay. so, but there is a situation where I wish I'd known the truth. So when I was diagnosed, I was getting my doctorate. And so I was living in a small college town. And I mean, I was required to read 1500 pages a week. I mean, it was just an absurd amount. And, you know, there are some like readers who can do that, but and teach and be writing my dissertation and, and, and it was so much concentration that it made sense that I thought I couldn't focus. I was being asked to focus in such a way that was almost, you know, for me, it was outside of my, um, obviously my abilities. And I went to a primary care physician in a small college town. And I said, I'm having trouble concentrating. And I'm sure he sees kids all the time and gives the ADHD diagnosis. And he gave it to me. But what happened was he gave me the Ritalin prescription. I took the Ritalin. It helped me focus. And then the circular kind of reasoning for mental health diagnoses, because we can't prove them is, well, if the medicine works, you must have it. Okay. But the problem with Ritalin is it works the same on someone with ADHD as without it. I saw you write that. Yeah, I I read that in your book. So it's a little tricky there. So here, another time though, I didn't know that. So here I was like, yes, I have ADHD, 100%. I can't believe I got this far, you know, and suddenly I'm lowering my expectations of myself. I'm looking at myself as this distracted person, this person who can't do anything, can barely fold the laundry, which by the way, I can. (laughs) So, um, but, but there's the dangers that I'm seeing is not having all the information that psychiatry does have. Um, and, and as I said, the response to my book has been amazing. We thought it was going to be all this pushback, all this negativity. It hasn't been at all. Hmm. Psychiatrists, and well, including my own, um, but other psychiatrists who I've heard from have said, we know. Hmm. We know this is such a huge problem. And, and that goes wow. way up to the top. So I was on NPR with Paul Applebaum, who's chair of the steering committee for the DSM. <laughs> so I thought we were going to rumble. You know, I mean, I didn't know what was going to happen, but he was wonderful and I respect him greatly. And, and when I talked about the gap between what psychiatry knows and what the public knows, he agreed. I mean, there's no danger in all of us having all the information. Well, I, I got to point out that it wasn't uh, as of when this episode airs, it won't it'll, it'll have been within months that we had uh, Dr. Tama Bryant on the show. She's the new president elect of the APA. And one of her primary things is, or, or efforts is to decolonize uh, psychology. And it's and a big focus for her is to bring some of the primary tenets of our culture and us as people, which is our faith and our spirituality. And we, you know, we were talking about meditation, some of those things that those aren't a part of the general psychiatric diagnoses again in treatment and we're missing out on that. So I'm, I'm, it's good timing to have you on because, uh, it'll be great to see her continue what she's trying to do in the APA along these lines and to help, but that's, I'm grateful to hear that you're not getting pushback. I was intrigued with the book, Sarah. I mean, I read it along and I felt like, oh my gosh, you're like the crash test dummy for mental health issues and dealing with them. And I get to read along this and go, I mean, I think people are going to read it and go, gosh, yeah, that's how I feel. I understand that feeling. I understand that frustration and I understand the fear in that. And, you know, you talk about, you ended up on multiple meds and to some point I felt like, and we see this in the medical arena and healthcare overall, often you have one med and it can have a side effect that begets another med that begets another med. And you fell into that soup pretty significantly. And then you just got a a problem caused by the meds themselves. 
And then that's part of your book is then having to back out. But I appreciate you saying you backed out, but there's some degree you're on those long enough that you're now dependent. And I hear you saying, and you just, you may be now. And that's, I guess, unfortunate, but it is what it is. You've obviously found a way to regulate. Now that involves, as you talk about, again, last chapter of your book, you have a lot of lifestyle regulate, I was gonna say lifestyle regulation, and you came into some significant self-awareness uh, as well. And really, you know, the, and this is what I'm writing about in my next book, mm-hmm. the key to all of this, because I was very healthy before I ate well, as you said, I was a runner. I mean, I, I really did. I, I tried meditation. It doesn't actually work for me. It makes me more anxious and more depressed. Hmm. And I read, I finally found out that a Stanford study showed that actually 60% of people have adverse reactions to meditation. So again, I think we're sort of throwing meditation at people like you must, you must, you must. And so if anyone's listening and you don't like it, it's okay. (laughs) You don't have to like it. I'm freeing you of meditation. I don't have to do it either. Thank you. (laughs) But there are lots of ways of, you know, I walk and that's a form of meditation. So I think we need to, you know, sort of broaden what that means and what the benefit we're trying, we're going for actually is. But there, so there are so many aspects that I was already doing. Um, But what changed for me was I stopped seeing myself as a diagnosis. And before I just, when I would get sad, it was because of my bipolar disorder. When I was hyper, it was because of my bipolar disorder. When I was, you know, negative towards someone, it was because of my bipolar disorder. When I was short with someone, I mean, everything was attributed to a diagnosis. And now, because I don't know what my diagnosis is, I have to take responsibility And I have to process my emotions and I have to look at situations where I've behaved in ways that I'd rather hadn't, I hadn't and say, okay, what was going on? Or if I wake up and I'm inexplicably sad, which still happens, I have terrible depressions, I have crippling anxiety, all of it. I say, what's going on? You know, I have to look at my whole life and say, what's happening? Am I sleeping enough? Am I drinking enough water? Like the basics, am I doing what I need to do? Um, So that really changed the most for me. That's what kind of signaled my healing. Well, and I appreciate you talking about, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Well, back to like Brene Brown's thing. So she's got her 87, you know, in Atlas of the Heart, 87 different emotions she's lined out. And, and my take on that is those are all natural emotions. And you spoke to this in the book and we were talking about it just earlier today, that it makes sense to me that as a human, so here I am a, a created human that my body has a necessary healthy trigger for depression. Let's say that I have a death that happens in my family. It's very traumatic for me. It makes sense that my body has a built in miraculous trigger that says, Whoa, you need to back up and and grieve and take this into account. This is my body's, you know, primary reaction. And yet then it also has a point of going, okay. And now you, you did that healthily and come out of that. There's a book, do you know the book, um, why zebras don't have ulcers. It's something along those. Yes. 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 Yeah. Okay. So zebras, you know, the lion comes, uh, they're sitting there joyfully chewing their grass. Lion comes, <laughs> they freak out, run a hundred miles an hour, try to get away from that. They get away from the lion. Five minutes later, what are they doing? Just hanging out, eating some grass again. You know I mean? They're doing <laughs> exactly. The, so, so we have these things that are supposed to work and I'm supposed to have a depressed feeling that is supposed to work. It's not supposed to get stuck in there. But now we have today where you get in there and I come in and say, man, I'm dealing with depression. Okay. Here's a, you have depression in that. 
And I know it's a sensitive topic because there are some people who do, who are broken. I mean, there's something that broke and needs help. But how many of us, you said the statement, but I've got it written down here, but maybe you can help me out. But you said, when did normal sadness become a depressive disorder? Did I get it right? Yeah. Like we're medicalizing sadness um, and calling it. So one problem I think with this, not our conversation, but the conversation around mental health is we equate depression, the disorder with depression, the emotion, anxiety, the disorder with anxiety, the emotion, we aren't separating them out. And those are the two most common diagnoses. So that's sort of one thing that we could just start to tease out now, whether or not anyone has a diagnosis permanently, that's never been proven. Now, some people will have them for the rest of their lives. And that's just because we're all different and everybody's situation is different and everybody's, you know, biology is different. They're not caused by biology alone, but they aren't in you in the sense that something is wrong with you. So even if you were to have the diagnosis your whole life, that's just how it happened. I mean, it's like getting diabetes, you know, that, that, you know, is not, you know, Diabetes one, I think, is the one that you're just you just get kind of spontaneously. Well, that's that's two. So you can be yeah, have type type one diabetes that is kind of a innate brokenness that usually happens in childhood. But then type two, which we are growing very well in our culture with lifestyle, and that's not me mm-hmm. saying. That. I mean, that you go to the CDC Center for Disease Control, and they'll tell you the same thing. I mean, that's not a right. That's not my opinion. Okay. And and there's some question. I mean, there's what they know is that there's an interplay, but they have not been able to show. Yes, these one of the biggest myths is that there's a chemical imbalance, that when you are depressed, you have a chemical imbalance. I found I believed that wholeheartedly when I received my major depression diagnosis. I believed it when I received my bipolar diagnosis. I received it throughout that all of these were caused by a chemical imbalance. Right. You can go to a bookstore, not that anyone goes to bookstores anymore, but if you did, you can pick up a book or, you know, whatever, go online and you will see chemical imbalance in some reputable, you know, either, you know, medical, you know, journalism or any, you know, anything and certainly um, self-help. But the reality is that myth was debunked 20 years ago. That shocked me. And it was always just a hypothesis. It came around in the 1950s and it was actually about dopamine, not even serotonin. And it was just a thought. It was like, "Mm, that's cool. Um, That could happen. But they found out it didn't. But what happened was pharmaceutical companies saw a great opportunity. If you could believe that, yes, you have a chemical imbalance and they say, we've got a drug that will help you with just that chemical imbalance, that's a lot of money to be made. And Eli Lilly made that money off of Prozac. So it was a great opportunity. And it just filtered into the conversation around mental health so much that people, a statistic I read was that 80% of the general public still believes in the chemical imbalance myth. That's a lot of people. Well, you brought my attention and thank you. Yeah. You actually called it chemical imbalance theory. And I appreciated that because now we tend to look at, yeah, normal sorrow, normal uh, depression, some normal anxiety, like the zebra is supposed to have anxiety. I'm grateful that I have anxiety. So when I almost go off the side of a cliff on my mountain bike, that raises up in me and increases my ability to slam the brakes on and you know use some physics and, and not fall off the face of the cliff. That's great anxiety. I appreciate that. But I don't want that to stick with me for the rest of the day and disable me. But you know, looking at at that, that theory that we have 
again, yeah, embrace that. And you, you also got me as you're talking about some of the drug companies thinking how odd, and I just didn't put two and two together. How, because I, I looked at the ads on TV for the drugs and thought it's, it's terrible that we have these because it's these issues are so predominant. But I didn't really click into what you brought me to of going. Wait, why are these drug companies advertising to the general public? They're not professionals. They don't know. So it goes along and says, "Hey, do you have this, this, and this, and this?" And they're going to the doctor and literally requesting this. When was the last time somebody went to their mechanic and told them what part they thought they needed? Or, or even just saying what was really wrong. Yeah. You would never do that with your car. I, well, I thought about yeah. that. Imagine if I will go up to my mechanic and say, man, my car is bumping along. It keeps pulling to the left. And I saw this ad. I'm thinking that it's probably a bad engine mount. Can you fix that? And they go, uh, okay, sure. We can try that. Let's try that and see if it works without actually walking out and seeing and saying, dude, you got a flat tire. But again, the industry does not have the expertise or the time. Your doctor does not have that. Going back to general practitioner, they don't. They do not have the time. Even if they had the skill, they do not have the time. So I'm I'm not villainizing them again, to say, gosh, let's get to the root of this and figure out what's happening with yeah. you, what's happening yeah. in your life, what's hap- what's happened in your life. What about your genetics? It's just there's not a place for that. And now there are doctors you can go pay a lot of money, like we've been talking about, that you can do. But for the average person. It puts us, and I know responsibility is a volatile word for a lot of times because that feels like you're getting admonished, but uh, it's almost a necessary evil of saying, well, there's really nothing more to do than to take what you've got and become an expert in yourself. Yes, that- exactly. And you bring up again, so many great points, but one thing that's really important to note is it's because we've got, you know, our diagnoses are so flawed. And again, that doesn't mean you don't accept one or take one on. But to give you you know, an example of how they create opportunities for pharmaceutical companies, for instance. So I didn't know this before, but pharmaceutical companies do something called disease awareness campaigns. Sometimes it's called market the diagnosis. Mm. And this is both sinister and brilliant at the same time. So in 2001, GlaxoSmithKline, a pharmaceutical company, right. had a drug called Paxil. Oh. And it was... Uh, uh, the FDA had um, passed it, you know, uh, for depression, but Prozac had taken a whole market for antidepressants. And so they had this drug Paxil and they had to find another diagnosis for it. So they went through the DSM and they found this very obscure diagnosis called generalized anxiety disorder, which wow. is now one of the most common yeah, yeah, <laughs> diagnoses I, you can I, get. I, I'm aware that I, only- know, I know it now, but I didn't used to. It wasn't that long ago that I didn't. Yeah, exactly. And so only 1% of the population had that. And GlaxoSmithKline knew we've got to create a market. We have to create a consumer base. And so they didn't market Paxil. They marketed the disorder. They marketed generalized anxiety disorder. So they created fake patient um, advocacy groups. They funded patient advocacy groups. They paid doctors to say, this is so prevalent. Everyone has this, not everyone, but people have this and they don't know they have it. And then suddenly, I mean, you know, the, the symptoms are pretty pretty common. You know, I worry, I excessively worry, I have unrealistic worries. That's kind of the nature, as you said, of being like our species. I mean, we were designed, our brains were literally designed to keep us alive. So it it is just constantly looking for danger. That's all my brain does all day long, I decided. And so given that, but if we're going to, you know, once we know of this thing called generalized anxiety disorder, and we attach our worry to that, 
we might actually go to a doctor and say, I think I have this disorder called generalized anxiety disorder and boom, a whole market, a consumer base is born. And that's what happened. Um, I mean, it's really terrible, but I want to speak to also, you know, when we talk about dysfunction, what's fascinating is part of the reason this is a problem. Again, they can't define dysfunction. We don't know at what point someone needs a diagnosis at one point they need medication, but it used to be that dysfunction meant you couldn't hold a job. It meant you couldn't live independently. It meant it was severe. And what I hear a lot, and especially from mental health professionals and and patients, is it limits my quality of life. My cat limits my quality of life sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And I love my cat, but like he does, you know. Well, (laughs) I'm thinking about this lawyer and what limits her quality of life, taking on another patient so she can make half a million bucks. That's that's fair and it's unfair and an exaggeration. But to some degree, she does not want to change her quality of life. I don't either. I don't want to do less. I would really rather not. Now, I'm I'm having to be forced to, to be in health. And you just said our bodies are... Would you say looking for danger? Uh, yeah, my brain. I would have been a pro on the Velt or the Savannah. Like you would want to be in my clan because okay. my brain is like danger, danger. danger. Okay, because the thing you're that opening I, email. Yeah, and the thing that know? I want to put out there is our bodies are our, our minds are looking for danger, and we are. I feel like I am, and I feel like my culture that I live within is leading dangerous lives. We have no margin. We put Mm. too much in there. We are constantly distracted. We are not growing in self-awareness. I think we're growing in self-unawareness. It's not cool and hip and sexy to be super self-aware. It's your bait, your, your credit is on what you do and what you post on you know Instagram. So we're leading dangerous lives. No wonder that we are having problems, but uh, is this an unnatural thing or, or is it a, it makes sense if we are doing X, then why you, you see, you mentioned that back to your schooling, you told the story, they had you doing an absurd amount of work. And it made me think back to my cycling analogy, you know, the tour de France, imagine running a marathon. Everybody knows what a marathon, imagine running a marathon 21 days in a row. That's stupid. That's what the tour de France is. No wonder the guys are taking performance enhancing drugs. It's on near impossible. You cannot recover from that. And so if we're living lives like the tour de France, where every single day, seven days a week, it is nonstop from the point that we can drag ourselves out of bed to where we fall in, that's, that is dangerous. And one thing you mentioned is this, you know, quality of life. We also are rather obsessed with happiness at the moment and this idea of happiness. And one thing that I've come to, two things I've come to do. One, I had to learn what emotions even are. You mentioned Brene Brown. That's why I had the I'm book. Fi- it was prescribed. To I have me. no idea. Yeah. Like I knew prescribed. That's what we should be prescribing. It, yeah, it I was did not, for me. Yeah. I didn't know they were sensations in my body. I couldn't have told you the difference between, I couldn't, I had no nuance at all. I was in a partial hospitalization program and they gave us an emotion wheel. Yeah. You ever seen those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I've been and, given it. and there are a hundred emotions. I thought you got to be kidding me. Like I can tell you happy and sad and that's it. Yeah. That's about as nuanced angry, as I can angry. get. I know that one. Yeah. And angry and you know, whatever it might be. But so I had to learn what emotions are, first of all, to understand what I was even feeling at the time and then learn how to process them. And this all happened after I wrote the book. Um, but, but that all took you know, a lot of effort. And what I came to was I often was like many people and I strove for happiness, this kind of elated, everything's great. And the emotion that I've come to love is contentment. Um, and satisfaction. Like those two, I'm like, okay, everything's hmm. okay. Everything's okay. And that's really 
helped a lot. I mean, I have to say, and I'm not on social media very much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> helps no, a lot too. <laughs> I, I love that contentment and satisfaction. It reminds me of, you know, somewhat of my own paradigm on joy versus happiness that I want to be in a place yeah. where I can have joy all the time, but it's not the fleeting happiness. This moment may not be happy, but can I have joy? But your, your aspect of contentment yes. and satisfaction, and I like the word fulfillment. Can I have that ongoing, even when there is a day when I, I just have anxiety and I'll, I can show you the reason. A lot of times I know what is at the root of that. And I'm trying to grow in self-awareness and emotional awareness. And I appreciate what Brene Brown is doing with that. And that has been a lot of my own suffering is a, a significant lack of awareness of, of, of what emotions are and then what mine are. I just know that it's either I feel good or I feel bad. It's about as far as right. I could go. And that's not helping me. Uh, no. <laughs> and yeah. and I think, I mean, the other thing that you brought up was just the, you know, again, oh, now what were you saying? Oh, I lost it. We'll go, we'll, well, go well I wanted, I wanted to ask you, Sarah, on, you know, so here you are with this, and I hope people read listen to the show and, and read the book and, and get some understanding here. But then it got me curious of, okay, now I see differences that you're doing in your life. And again, you wrote them as last chapter and some things I, I mentioned before that you are pursuing your own peace and margin and self-awareness and you're not drinking and you're not, uh, you know, doing, I think you said something about, you know, caffeine or, or something and yeah. you're getting good sleep and you are taking walks and you are engaging in relationships, which we'll get into in the part two section uh, that we do. And, and so you're doing these things. So now when you have, which has got to be happening, I would think more and more, but it has for a while. When you have somebody in your life, whether it's a friend, family member, or somebody who read your book or that you're teaching in a class or whatnot, and they say, look, I'm having this problem. And they talk about the symptoms. How do you find yourself directing them as opposed mm -hmm. to just, you know, Hey, Go see a doc, get a diagnosis and a drug. You're not doing that. But what, what are you doing? Because there is some point, and you talk about that in the end of the book, you have some, you know, so what do you do? Know yourself, ask your doctor some of these questions. Don't just take it blindly. But yeah. there is some aspect that I can hear people going, okay, I get this. I think this is going to resonate with pretty much everybody in the audience, but they're still going to be left with, I do have some things that are, yes. what did you say at the top of the show that are you know, dysfunctional. Yes. Thank oh, you. That are, that yeah. are negatively impacting my life. And I'm struggling to have sleep. I'm struggling to focus. I am having anxiety. I need to do something. So mm -hmm. where is the direction you are leading people then? And I think one thing I now remember what I was going to say, but the, yeah. um, the free floating anxiety or one thing I had was I often had no reason to be depressed yet. I was and, and, you know, nothing was necessarily bad. And I think that's really scary to us. And so that's one thing too, that I'm looking at in my own life. And I hope other people can look at um, is that's part of this too, a kind of free floating anxiety, as we said, their brains just designed for it. And then depression um, in evolutionary psychiatry, they believe depression is actually when you've been sort of and anxiety on high alert danger coming depression is actually a, a kind of a medicine for your body to like slow it down okay. and that it could be a response to just like get the system back to neutral and and that's really fascinating and so again we don't have proof of that but i like that um, well, it, idea it, it that makes sense biologically that our, like we were talking about before that my body has an ingrained 
function system to say, to tell me what to do. And if I'm living this dangerous life, that it's going to try to shut me down. No different than at the, at the end of the day, your body's saying, look, you're, you're done. Go to, go to sleep yeah. and you feel sleepy. So if I still be depressed, should that be a red flag that I pay attention to the why and not just think, Oh, I have a back to your, uh, I have a chemical imbalance, uh, and whatnot. And to what you said too, that's interesting because I think a lot of people struggle with that reality of, look, if I count my blessings and I'd be gratitude, I have a lot to be grateful for. I shouldn't feel this way yet. I do. And in the same sense that you talked about, we're so enamored with happiness. I feel like we are in a place and I'm not dissing this at all, but of seeking gratitude, just go to gratitude. And yeah. I hear that message and I know people, including myself who benefit from that. I don't feel like across the board, it's helping a lot. That mm. concept of, Oh, just, just find what you're grateful for is not really eradicating. Maybe, maybe it's because of what you said, because we're still not coming around and going, okay, yeah, but what is at the root here? Oh, so we have to come back to this for part two, Okay, because I have a very specific gratitude practice because it was always false to me. It always felt really shallow. So we'll come back to that. Gratitude practice. For sure. Perfect. Um, Because I was definitely a gratitude naysayer uh, big time, but this is a different way of doing it. Okay. Awesome. Um, I just want to speak to also um, that there is a difference between being in crisis and suffering even. I mean, I'm not trying to lessen anyone's suffering, but if anyone is experiencing suicidality, if anyone is experiencing psychosis, that's being in crisis. That's immediate care. That's needing to go possibly to the emergency room. That is, you know, that's a very different situation. So you ask, what do I say when people come to me? That is you know, you, you have to go to the emergency room. I mean, that's, that's what that's we kind of like the, the phone likely. message on the medical place. If you're, you know, in an acute place right now, call 911. So we're, exactly. we got, okay. you know, or we have 988, I think is the new suicide hotline number. Oh. So we have a new number for, and we should check that and put it in the um, show notes, but wow. I think it's, I think it's 988. And, um, but so that's very different. But what I've heard a lot, the people I've heard from the most, which has been fascinating are parents, often of adult children who've been diagnosed over and over and over again, who've been through what I went through and are now living at home with their parents and have a diagnosis, one woman, you know, something like bipolar or major depression. And they see themselves as that diagnosis. They don't think they can hold a job. They don't think they can be in a relationship and it just breaks their parents' heart hearts. And I, I, you know, so for that, what I, then they read my book and they can't believe they weren't told everything that was in my book and they wish they'd known. And, and what I say to them, and I believe this for all of us is just knowing the truth changes everything. I mean, you don't even have to do anything, but if you know something you didn't know before, everything's different, right? I mean, you can't go about your life pretending you don't know what you can, but like we don't, you know, you still know it in your, in your mind. Um, So for instance, I said, you will interact with your child very differently if you know that, these diagnoses aren't perfect. Like that's they're far from it. And they are often unreliable and they're, we can't prove anything. And, you know, if you know that you're going to interact with your child so differently, and, and that doesn't mean you don't get them treatment and that doesn't mean you don't get them care. And it doesn't mean they're not on medication, you know, none of that. Right. That's not the, uh, you know, that's not the um, sort of next point of this, but just knowing, I think if we all can know the truth and know, have all the information, we'll be so much more empowered. Is this fair, Sarah? Because I, I, I'm seeing this in my notes that I wrote at some point. It was it was the latter half of your book, and just my own thinking about 
we're looking, <clears throat> we're looking at back to the chemical imbalance, mental illness. There's a mental, there's something that I caught like a, like COVID, you know, you caught COVID, don't know how, don't know where, don't know where, but I caught COVID. Now it's in me that mental illness, I caught mental illness or I get it in me somehow it got in there. And that's the causation of X as opposed to looking at the causation of the mental illness. Is that too elementary or too simplistic to put it? Let me just make sure I understand. So you're saying the causation of the diagnosis versus the causation of the mental illness? Yeah. So often are we looking at mental illness, like a chemical imbalance and saying, Hey, I, I have a mental illness. That's the causation of me having these symptoms as opposed to looking at it backwards and saying, wait, I, I may be having some symptoms of mental illness. What is the causation of, of that? It's okay. Yeah. We immediately go straight to the diagnosis first. Um, and instead, I think what you're saying is I'm having these symptoms. What's happening in my life? Is yeah. that accurate? Yes. Like what's the cause in my life? Yeah. But what we're doing, and, and I understand why this is happening. I was suffering terribly and I wanted an answer and I wanted relief. And in physical medicine, that usually means go to a doctor, get a diagnosis, get medication. And, and that's, so it's understandable that we're trying to do the same thing with mental health diagnoses. The problem is they don't work the same way. Well, it brings me back to my analogy with, with Randy, somebody comes into the office and their blood pressure's through the roof. He's going to say, you need a med now. Thank God for pharmaceuticals. That's what they were created for. It's a miracle. Let's get you on that. Let's get you regulated so that you don't tip over here right now. Then let's go do the hard work of figuring out what it is because you don't have high blood pressure because your body has a lack of high blood pressure medication. Yeah. And I think we could say the same thing here. You don't have ADHD because you have a lack of Adderall. Um, it, it, there's, there is a, a causation and that, you know, and you may be, and I'm grateful that you are in the place that you're, that you are of saying, I still have issues, you know, that you still have issues that you're still on some meds. I mean, there are levels of brokenness that need treatment and long-term treatment. So again, not minimizing that in and of itself, but minimizing maybe how many people are actually at that acute of a brokenness and, and of a stage. And I, and I feel like in essence, you know, your answer to my question there, what to do is you're saying, First, just stop and audit yourself, audit your, you know, like, like the kid, what is the kids like? I'm sensitive to that, Sarah. I've got uh, one kid in particular who goes to school. She gets out. She has time to do, you know, a little bit of homework or whatever, get some food in her. And then she goes to gymnastics. Now, right now she seems like she's flourishing, but we're watching her uh, sensitively go, man, that's a good, that's a good mix for her to not have margin in her life. And is this what we want to do long-term? Because if it starts to go South, we're going to take her out of gymnastics or limit that, or, you know, and in some degree, when we've had kids and had times where we've gone, man, I don't think that this is serving the kid. We're going to homeschool them. Now that's a huge thing. Some people do not, there's a single mom out there who has no option to do that. And man, I am uber sensitive to that, but you know, what can give if possible, and we're back to the lifestyle design, but I, maybe before that, just saying, you're saying, let's, let's, let's look at what is happening, which you had no, no framework for in these early, well, I would say early years for the majority of your life. There's no framework yeah. for that. No, all. because the diagnosis was the answer. Yeah. And so when we're, when we limit ourselves to that, and so what I was also saying is that knowledge of the limitations of diagnoses forces us, or it's forced me 
to look at the whole picture. That's what's made the difference. Since I can't just say diagnosis, now I have to look at everything. Yeah. And, and I think it's kind of like forced self-awareness, basically, because I can't just blame everything on the diagnosis. And this goes to larger issues. If we blame everything on a diagnosis, we don't have to look at the social and economic injustices that lay, lead to poor mental health. So it's a much bigger issue than just, you know, my preferences or not, you know, in terms of whether or not I want to identify with a diagnosis. It's more about let's just pause, you know, before going straight to that. Yeah. I just appreciate the vulnerability that you had in here, the candor in the book and your sensitivity to the volatile ends of that, that you didn't villainize anybody. You did that masterfully, in my opinion. Thank so thank you. And the uh, the measuring stick for me, uh, often with things like this, I'm, I'm holding up your book for those who watch the video, is I want my adult kids to read this um, because these are issues that they are seeing, if not in themselves, that is just, it just is a part of our culture right now. So I, I would love everybody to be educated through what you've done. So. Uh, thank you. Thank you for what you have done to bring this to us, what you've endured to bring us uh, this to us and for uh, taking the time to be with me today, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was a great conversation. Well, friends, uh, again, Sarah Faye's book is Pathological, the true story of six misdiagnoses. You can find that wherever you buy books and you can find her at sarahfay.org. That's S-A-R-A-H. F-A-Y dot O-R-G. Hey, thanks for choosing to tune in to the Self-Helpful Podcast. You can find me at kevinmiller.co. And if you got value here, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss any episodes and give us a rating and review. Help others know what they can hope to glean from the show. I sincerely hope that I've helped you help yourself.